Well, good morning again, and um, we're going to dive into this series. I want to tell you on the front end, there's going to be moments over the next four weeks that feel heavy um, as, as we deal with uh, some of these things, but our goal is to do the very thing that we've said. We want to unravel the deception. We want to unravel the deception of cultural sexuality, right? We want to we want to take a good look at God's design, and we want to deal with what God's Word says about sexuality, about gender, and about identity. We want to deal with it the way God's Word lays it out for us, because when it comes to those things, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender and identity, I wonder if you would agree with me that we are in a crisis of confusion, a crisis of confusion, right? And much of the confusion centers around all the voices speaking into these issues into our life. And there are primarily, though, two voices speaking when it comes to gender and sexuality. One is the voice of the designer, God's voice. The other is the voice of the deceiver. One of those voices is designed to bring blessing. The other has one purpose, to deceive to confuse, and to destroy. It's his only, only purpose. And over these weeks, we're going to be presented with a choice. Every person in this room, young and old, students, young people, young married, been married, not young, that, that group, we're all going to be presented with a choice. And the choice is which voice are we going to listen to? Which voice will we listen to? There's no shortage of voices speaking into this issue, especially in the lives of, of young people and, and students. Um, it's important to listen to the right voice, amen? So in the early years of the automotive industry, uh, Ford was kind of the leader. He came out with the, the Model T, right? It was a guy who bought a Model T car. He's taking his car out for his, his Model T out for a drive one day, and uh, his, his Ford Model T did what Fords do. It broke down. And so, <laughs> that's not a good way to start, is it? It's not untrue. And so anyway, they, it, the car broke down, and uh, he gets out. He's trying to fix it, tries this, tries different things, can't, can't get the car to crank. After a while, another car pulls up beside him. This old man gets out and says, man, can I help? He goes, well, maybe. He goes, I've tried this. That didn't work. I tried this. If it isn't these things, it's got to be this. And this old man says, I don't think it's any of those things. You mind, you mind if I take a look? He goes, man, help yourself. I don't think you're going to be able to fix it. Old man peers over the hood, looks down, makes a small adjustment, and says, crank it up. Guy cranks it up, fires right off. This guy goes, how in the world? Did you, how did you do that that fast? How did you know what was messed up? He goes, well, my name's Henry Ford, and I built that car. I built that car. I designed it, and I built it, and I know what makes it work. And I knew immediately what was wrong with it. Family, I want you to hear me say, God created us. He built us. He designed us. We are made in His image. He is the designer, which means, ready? He knows what makes us work. 
He knows what makes us work. He knows what we need. And if what we know, if what we need to know is how life works and how sex works and how gender works and how identity works, we better lean into the voice of the designer, the one who made it, because he's always going to know what's best. So where do we turn when we need to hear the voice of the designer? Well, we turn to the word the designer spoke to us. We turn to the Bible. The Bible is not some antiquated, out-of-date, irrelevant book. It is the word of the designer spoken to us. That is what it is. And it's the first place we look because it's trustworthy. And guess what? It has said the exact same thing for thousands of years. Thousands of years. And if Jesus tarries, it'll say the same thing 10,000 years from now. Because it endure, the Bible says the word of the Lord endures forever. So, so, so we, we turn our hearts to this. It's why we affirm every single week that the Bible is true. We affirm that every single week. And I think for so many people who struggle with areas in sexuality or gender identity or, or find themselves battling some of these hot-button cultural issues, there's a push away from God's Word because they see it as a book of judgment, archaic and judgmental. But I love what Robbie Gallaty said. He's a pastor at Long Hollow. He said this, The Word of God is never given as a club to bludgeon you. It is a love letter to invite you into a relationship with God who loves you so much and is pursuing you. So church family, our goal is to turn ourselves to the love letter from the designer. That, that's what we're going to turn our heart to the love letter he wrote to us. And family, I want you to hear me say, there is not one portion of God's word given to you to swing over the head of another person. It does not exist for you to wield it as a, as a hammer to bludgeon someone that, doesn't, that sees things differently or battles an issue that God's Word calls sin. Because here's what I know. You can take their sin, put my sin in the blank, and it grieves the heart of God just the same. Just the same. So we're going to invite, we, we've been invited into the love letter from God. The God who loves us. And is pursuing us. And I want to tell you today and for the next four weeks, I'm not here to get a bunch of that's right, amens, and applause. I'm not here to walk away with us feeling more affirmed in our political positions. This isn't political. It's, It's spiritual. It's biblical. And I would tell you, family, that if we do not walk away from these four weeks with a deeper compassion and a greater empathy and a more meaningful kindness and love toward people who are battling the issues we're going to talk about, then we completely missed the point. If you walk out of here and you're pumping your chest because you feel like you're nailing it on the political side, but you don't walk out of here with a deeper empathy and compassion for people who are dealing with these things, you missed it. You want to know why? Because compassion, empathy, kindness, and love, those are the heartbeat of the gospel. And you wouldn't have Jesus if those things weren't extended to you. So God, help us. 
if we've put our circle around a few struggles in people's lives and decided it's those areas where we're not going to extend compassion and mercy and love. And I'm telling you, some of you in this room, you look at people who struggle in those areas or disagree with you in those areas, and you have nothing but wrath and anger toward them. And you need the supernatural work of God to move in you for the next four weeks. And we need to see God move in us. Because the goal of this is that we would build within us, that we would, as disciples of Jesus, build within us a framework of believing. Right? That we would, that we would build a, a biblical foundation that enables us to be filled with grace and hope and love and truth. And I want to tell you, you don't have to forfeit truth to be filled with love. That's a lie from the devil. But truth must always be accompanied in love, or it ceases to be the kind of truth God gave us to share. I want to build, my prayer is that we'll build this God-centered, gospel-inspired framework of believing that works its way in us and out of us through compassion and love. And my prayer is also that, that those who are genuinely struggling and trying to navigate what they see in God's word versus what they feel internally, and they're battling it, and they don't know how, that they will find hope hearing the voice of the designer. Because more than ever in the church, there are people who love Jesus and are battling this, and they need help. Let me ask you, do you need help in your sin struggle? I know most of you aren't sinners, but I need help in my sin struggle. Those of us who are sinners, do you need help? Do you need supernatural power to come alongside you and encourage you in those areas where the devil knows you're weak? You bet you do. You bet you do. We all need that. So that's, that's the prayer, which means for four weeks, do you know what we're going to do? At no point are we going to let go of the parable Jesus told about the splinter in one eye with a beam in our own eye. We're just going to, we're going to hold its hand for four weeks. Are you with me? Yes. So we're going to do. All right. If you're not with me, I'm still going to do it. Here we go. <laughs> because when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender, our culture has gotten things twisted. We have gotten things twisted. We've navigated away from God's design. And when we do that, no matter what area of life it is, but when we do that, when it comes to sexuality and gender, when we navigate away from God's design, it always, every time, causes a wound in us. It creates this wound that forms in us. And what's happened is we've allowed this gap to form between sexuality and spirituality, as if those things cannot work together. So we've allowed a gap to form between biology and theology, as if the God of theology didn't create biology. So there's this gap that we form that says, well, we view sexuality in a vacuum over here, and then we try to keep spirituality over here. 
We've separated. Well, we, we put biology in this box, but we keep our, our spiritual beliefs over here. And what we've done is we've turned it all into political positions and not spiritual convictions. And when we do this, it creates this skewed view, this twisted view of the world and, and of ourselves. And because of this twisted view, the enemy and culture is hijacking something that God made. And when God made it, he called it good. So our goal today is to get a fresh look at God's design. To take a fresh look at what it is that God made. So here's the first um, big idea from the day. Here's the first big idea. Write this down. God is the designer who creates order that leads to blessing. God is the designer who creates order that leads to blessing. You see this right from the beginning. Grab your Bible. Head to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start today. What you see in Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of all things. You see the designer beginning to work. We're going to start right there in verse 1. It says this. If you're there, I want to hear you say, the Bible is true. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. So if you stop right there, that's not a good state for things. Right? It's dark. It's void. It's empty. It's disordered. And it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Here comes the voice of the designer. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And God said, and on and on it goes through Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The voice of the designer speaks, he speaks with authority in his creation, his design comes into being. Plants and vegetation, land, water, animals, humanity. He speaks in his design comes into being. And what we know from creation is that God has set up a system by which humanity can flourish and thrive. He has set up in his design a system that works in rhythms, that works in opposites, that work together. There are rules, there are standards, there are laws that he has woven into the very fabric of our world that when we operate within those, we flourish, we thrive. There are laws, natural laws, that he has woven into creation that there's not a single thing you can do something about, right? You can't violate those laws. If you try, you know what happens? They violate you, right? Crawl up on the church and see if the law of gravity applies this morning. I promise you it does. What goes up? So it it applies, right? There's laws of energy. There's laws of cause and effect, You see this design and the system that he has put in place and the rhythms that he has given us. You see it in in the opposites, the things that are opposite of one another that he has caused to work together, that he has built into his design to work together. 
You have day, you have night. They're opposite of one another, and yet they work together in this perfect harmony. You have water and land. They're the opposite, but they work together. The sun and the moon works together. The rain and the dry works together. Work and rest. These things are opposites, but they work together. And you see it in our creation, male and female. They're opposites, but they work together. And here's what we know. When you get too much of any one of those things, life no longer thrives. If all we had was the sun, we would die. If all we had was rain, we would die. Right? If all we did was work, we would die. But you see these opposites that God has made that come together and He works with, that work within this design. And when it works within that design, we thrive. You see this law of opposites even in our creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, just a few, uh, one chapter over from where you were, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So of all the things that God created, one after another, he echoed, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he came to man without man's opposite. And you know what he said? It's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God knew there needed to be a balance for humanity to thrive, and God always brings that balance through opposites that work together. So under this big idea of God as the designer who creates order that leads to blessing, there's two little, two little sub-points. I want you to write these down. Here's the first one. Humanity always flourishes when we operate within God's intended design. Humanity always flourishes when we operate within God's intended to design. God created humanity to work according to a design, and we flourish and we prosper within that design. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, God created it exactly as it should be. Two genders, both bearing the image of God, created to be distinct, created to be unique, yet equal in value, and he designed them to connect and to relate to one another physically, emotionally, and spiritually within a covenant relationship. He designed them to work together. Even though men and women, males and females, we're opposite, right? I guess... Yes, Paula Abdul was onto something when she said, it ain't simple, it's just a natural fact. We come together because what? Opposite. Who is, y'all are just too, I don't know if you're too old or too young. Where are my 90s people? Show of hands. Opposites attract. <laughs> I'm dropping Paula Abdul lines and y'all aren't even finishing. Come on. I bet if I went bing, 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 ba, ba, bing, bing, everybody in this room would start. <laughs> Listen to some Paula Abdul. She's unbelievable. <laughs> Right? The relationship between male and female, designed by God, husband and wife, is meant to reflect the covenant relationship between the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the intimacy shared, the community shared, it's meant to be a reflection of that. Listen, being image bearers of God is more than about what we look like. It's about bearing the relational nature of God Himself. 
And when God created sexuality, which he did, and when he created gender, he created it to thrive according to his design of, of, of two genders coming together to work together even in their difference in order to reflect his nature. And alongside with everything else, he looked at it and said, it is good. Humanity always flourishes when we operate within God's intended design. The opposite of that is true as well. Humanity always suffers when we operate outside God's intended design. Humanity always suffers when we operate outside God's intended design. Right? When we operate within the design, we thrive. But every time throughout the Bible and throughout human history, every time humanity tries to introduce our own design, we try to introduce our own system, we try to redefine God's order, it has always led to suffering and heartache and chaos every time. Think about when you played games as a kid, right? So growing up outside our home, we lived on about 18 acres. It was, it was awesome. There was this little asphalt kind of circle where my dad poured so we could, they could turn around and go up the driveway, but he put a, a basketball goal post right there, and it's where we played basketball, and we played all the time. And the biggest fights we got into, me and my brother as kids, was what is out of bounds, right? Because there's no markers out there. Now, on the left-hand side, there's a barbed wire fence. If you hit that, nature's going to tell you you're out of bounds. The puncture wounds say, okay, there's a boundary. Don't cross it. But everywhere else, right, we're just playing, and nobody knows where out of bounds is. It changes all the time. What I knew was when I had the basketball, all 18 acres were in bounds. That's all I knew. I had 18 acres of court, right? When he touched the basketball, he got about five square feet, and it was out of bounds immediately. But our biggest fights were that we didn't define the boundaries. No game thrives without clearly defined boundaries. No, clearly defined rules and guidelines. Here's the issue. In order for the game to thrive, the players have to submit to the rules. And in order for you to thrive within God's design, you have to submit to the boundaries he set in place. How many of you know that frustrating feeling of watching your favorite sports team play? It happens every Friday night at a Buckeye game. And the calls that we should be getting, we're not getting. And you are convinced both of these teams aren't playing by the same rules, right? It happens every Friday night at the Buckeye. I don't know if other high schools go through that. We go through it every Friday, I'm convinced, right? And uh, how, how many, but there, that, why is that so frustrating to us? Because it feels like somebody's trying to change the rules right in the middle of the game, and I want you to hear me. That is exactly what the devil and culture want to do. They want to change the rules ever so subtly to circumvent God's design. God has created natural laws. He's created natural boundaries, and within them we thrive. But when we violate them, we violate ourselves, and we harm our own well-being, and we rob ourselves of the joy of His design. And I want to tell you, the first 
and greatest and most consistent lie the devil has ever whispered and is still whispering today is that true happiness is only found in playing by your own rules. That's the lie he whispers. Play by your own rules. Be obedient to what you feel. That's where you'll be happy. Was the first lie. It's the lie he tells me every day. He tells you that same lie. So the message of popular culture has become that in order to be happy, we look to ourselves. We look to our desires. We look to our feelings. And if, if you're on social media, which I'm not, but I kind of looked a little bit this week in anticipation of this, these places like Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook, they are saturated with people who call themselves influencers, which I don't think there's a more infuriating word in history than influencer. It just makes me nauseous, right? But they, and they have millions of followers, millions of people who wake up every day and go, let me let this person speak into my life. And here's what some of them are saying. They're saying things like, um, nothing destroys self-worth, self-acceptance, and self-love faster than denying what you feel. And I wonder if you hear the poison in that. Some of you in this room didn't hear the poison in that at all. You heard that and you went, yeah, because what I feel is how I feel loved. If I do what I feel, I feel self-worth and self-acceptance. And that is a lie from the enemy because you want to know why? Your, your feelings are liars. Woo! My feelings have told me some doozies of lies in the past. And had I only walked in obedience to my feelings, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. There's these lies that say nothing destroys self-love, self-acceptance, self-worth faster than denying what you feel. And if you will permit me, I will, I will quote Jesus Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. Because anyone who loses his life for my sake, do you know what he finds? Life. He finds it. If you're willing to lose it for the sake of Christ and in obedience to Jesus, even when it's hard, even when it goes against what my mind is telling me that I feel about my own body and my own identity, if I'm willing to lay it down to run hard after Christ, I find life. That is not what culture is saying. Culture is saying life is found in embracing yourself. Running hard after what you want and pursuing what you feel. And these are profoundly self-focused messages, right? And they, what they shout to us if, is if it doesn't line up with what I feel today, if it doesn't line up with what, is, what I think is going to make me happy today, I don't need it. And while the Bible talks about giving us joy and in, and in the gospel we find life, can I, can I just tell you something? 
Jesus didn't come to make you happy. You've heard me say this before. He came to make you holy. But when you walk in holiness, do you know what you find? Happiness. You find joy. He came to make us holy. So that's first big idea. God is the designer who creates order that leads to blessing. And when we walk in his intended design, we flourish, we thrive, and when we don't, it brings suffering. Here's the next big idea. So that's the voice of the designer. Satan is the deceiver who creates disorder that leads to confusion. Satan is the deceiver who creates disorder that leads to confusion. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God is speaking with authority, one authoritative statement after another, and God said, and God said, and it was good, and it was good, and creation is coming into being under the power of His voice. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, and the serpent, the deceiver speaks, and the very first words out of His mouth are a question meant to cause disorder. Genesis 3, 1, what does it say? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? The most lethal words in history. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is a deceiver who creates disorder. That leads to confusion. How does he do that? I just want to point out two very quick ways. You see it right there in his first words. Satan deceives by introducing a question mark where God puts a period. Satan deceives by introducing a question mark where God puts a period. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will die Period. Satan's first words. Did God actually say you cannot eat of the tree? Right? He puts a question mark in there. And he does this every day in our lives. And he finds the areas where we struggle and he starts introducing question marks, right? Did God really say that you should wait until marriage in order to have sex? Did he really say that? Did God really say Pornography and lusting after someone who is not your spouse is a big deal. Did he really say that? This is that moment where we're okay talking about homosexuality and gender issues, but when we start talking about porn, we draw up. Does it really matter who you marry as long as you love them? Does it matter that they're a believer? Does it matter that they care about God at all as long as you love them? Didn't Jesus say loving one another is what it's all about? Right? Doesn't God, does God really care about gender and sexuality as long as I'm happy? Is the Bible still relevant today? Introducing question after question after question where God has put a period. Satan always wants to do that, especially in the areas where we struggle. 
Rarely is Satan going to tempt you by calling God a liar. He knows for us, those who belong to him, that's just too easy of a lie to see and identify. He's not going to call God a liar. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say, um, God's withholding something from you. There is some good he wants you to, that, that you don't get to have if you follow his way. There's something good you're missing out on. That's the lie he'll tell you. He wants you to doubt his word and doubt his goodness and doubt that his plan is best. And he whispered this lie to Eve because he wanted her to believe God was holding out on her. That there was some good thing, some greater happiness that God didn't want her to have. And isn't that what he tells us every day? When we are faced with the moment of are we going to give in to this sin and give in to this temptation? We're faced with that moment of, but I feel this way, and if I give in to this, it'll feel this way. And doesn't God just want me to be happy? So Satan deceives by introducing a question mark where God puts a period. Here's the other way he deceives. Satan deceives by redefining what is good. Oh, this is what he's doing right now. By redefining what is good. Look again at Genesis 3.1. Serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say? So there's the question mark. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And now Satan is going to try to redefine what is good. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. That sounds great. And you will be like God. Oh, that sounds amazing. And you will know good and evil. That sounds unbelievable. What is he doing? He's telling Eve that what God has said is bad and off limits and harmful to you is actually good and you should embrace it and it's going to bring you happiness and it's going to make you wise like him. He's redefining what is good. And this is the lie permeating our culture. A redefining of what is good. All right? This is exactly what we see playing out all around us in regard to sexuality and gender. There's been a complete reframing and redefining of what is good. And the enemy takes a piece of the truth, he distorts it, and he serves it up as what is good. Just think about what you experience every day. Think about what, think about the normalization, the absolute normalizing of sexual sin. I'm not just talking about homosexuality. I'm talking about adultery. Think about the normalizing, the comedic wrapping that we put that in. The normalizing of sexual sin. We live in a culture that not only tolerates sexual immorality, but champions it. We champion, we're supposed to champion it. 
I would tell you, you'd be hard-pressed to find any secular entertainment that does not offer an altered view of sexuality, where casual sex is encouraged, adultery is common and funny, marriage is devalued and unnecessary, homosexuality and transgender lifestyles are just woven into everything from commercials to movies, and it's shouted so much, we're starting to just deaden our eyes and our hearts to it. This became very real a few years ago. Maybe not even a few years ago. I can't remember how long. It wasn't that long ago. I have always loved Toy Story. Any other Toy Story fans? It's okay. Mickey Mouse ain't here. We're fine. Right? I've loved Toy Story. I love that story. The most recent installment of that was the Buzz Lightyear film where in it, in a cartoon geared toward the youngest of the young, two girls kiss in the, in the movie. Now, why? Because there is an effort from the enemy to speak into the most vulnerable and open of minds in order to normalize what God said is off limits. What God said is going to bring harm. It's going to bring wounds. It's going to bring devastation. He's normalizing that to the most open and the most vulnerable of minds so that for them it's a normal thing. I know that's a little preachy. It's a little soapboxy. But it's a part of a greater effort in our culture to propagate this nonsense. Why? Because if you say something loud enough, long enough, eventually people will just begin to take it for the truth. Let me tell you something. That doesn't just apply to sexuality. Some of you only know how to turn on your favorite network news, turn it on 24-7, turn it up and rip the knob off and just receive whatever it is they say. I didn't, I didn't think you'd like that part. Okay. <laughs> what is propaganda, though? It's the ability to make someone believe an alternate reality by repeating a lie over and over again. I repeat a thought. I repeat an idea, I repeat a point of view enough times, and eventually what I repeat becomes what is real. And so in our culture, we have experienced this saturation of an alternate reality that says what I feel, what I want, what I desire is the only path to contentment. And we've just accepted that. And the devil is a master deceiver. You want to know what his primary titles are in the Bible? Liar and destroyer. That's his primary titles in the Bible. And he's crafted and created a culture that is writing a new standard of good. And it's no longer about tolerating someone's lifestyle. If you don't celebrate it, you're the problem. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we cling to the voice of the designer? How do we lovingly engage a culture that is becoming more and more um, aggressive and polarized? More and more, if you're not for us, you're against us. Champion what we want to do or you're the enemy. That ain't just on the other side. 
That happens on this side. Believe what we believe, see the world the way we see it, or we disregard you and put you aside. And we don't make room for people who are just trying to figure this out. They hold, they love Jesus, and they're trying to figure it out. They want to honor God with their life. Have we made room for them to navigate these issues and find hope and healing and joy in the presence of God? What do we do? Two things. We've got to listen to the right voice. We've got to listen to the right voice. God's Word. The voice of the designer. If He designed it, He gets to define it. We've got to listen to His voice. And with that, here's the challenge for us. In humility, with compassion, we have to echo his message. Speaking the truth in love is what Christ did. We love the truth, but if we haven't encased it in the love of God, and the compassion of the gospel, and the empathy that we ourselves received from Christ, the truth becomes a hammer we're swinging, not a message of hope. We speak the truth in love. So parents and grandparents, let me just talk to you for just a minute. Your children have a target this big on their back. And they are swimming in an ocean of information. An ocean. I thought it was a lot when I was younger, and my parents thought it was a lot when they were younger, and their parents, it's, they, are, they are thrown into an ocean every day of information trying to convince them of what they should embrace and celebrate and be a champion for. And just very practically speaking, The enemy knows how to use this as a window into their heart. Some of you know it because he uses it as a window into yours. Some of you are battling things that relate to this as adults. And you would give anything for your children not to battle it, but because you don't have victory, you have no idea how to show them how to walk in purity with this thing. And every day when they open this up and they scroll feeds and they scroll Instagram and they scroll Snapchat and they're doing all these things, you know what is happening? There's a door being drop kicked open of influence. Now, this is not some anti-device rant. I got one. It's in my pocket all the time. I'm saying if you don't know where they are and what they're doing with it. right? If you don't know where they are on it and what they're doing with it. There's going to be a bunch of them in this service in the next junior high and high school. Most of them will come at the next service. They're going to be furious when I say that, and I'm still going to say it. There's a target on them. What do you do? Boy, you don't let culture shape them. You pray. You beg for wisdom. You know what James 4 says? If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord. Let him pray and ask God. That's what I've done. 
my daughter's 22, my sons are 18, and all I've done for 22 years is ask God for wisdom because I feel like such a failure sometimes. And I feel so lost, and I feel so inept at helping them. And maybe you figure like you've got it out, but I, I've had to beg for wisdom. So I want to leave you with a story about the importance of listening to the right voice. And as I tell this story, you're going to want to believe it's not true. It's 100%. It's going to seem like a preacher story. It's 100% true. Uh, there was a believing man who was an attorney named David Gibbs. David Gibbs and his law partner were practicing law, uh, and they had traveled to the Lucian Islands, I believe that's how you say it, in Alaska. And they were out on the Lucian Islands. They were working their way through a case, wrapping up some legal work. They were getting ready to fly from that little airport into Anchorage, Alaska, so that they could go from Anchorage and come home. They already bought their tickets on a little commercial airline, getting ready to get on. And in the airport, David Gibbs was a well-known attorney. He was a well-known believer as well. There was a pastor in the airport who was a pilot, and he owned his own small plane. He recognizes David Gibbs, and he comes up to him and says, Brother Gibbs, I'm a pastor. I, I, I own a small plane. I'm, I have, I'm a pilot. I would love to just, as a gift to you, fly you and your law partner from here to Anchorage. And y'all can exchange that ticket, use those for something else, save that money, use that ticket for a trip for your families. I just want to do this. And David Gibbs was like, man, we've already bought them. I, I think we'll just stay commercial. We'll just, we'll just say, thank you though. What a sweet thing to offer. The pastor was insistent. No, I want to do this. Let me do this for you. Let me bless you this way. So he gives him and um, they exchange the tickets and, and they're going to let the pastor fly them to Anchorage. And as they walk out onto the airstrip, he sees the little plane that they're about to get on and it doesn't inspire confidence. He's like, oh, that's nice and small, right? If you've ever been on one of those little, they call them puddle jumpers. They are, uh, whew, can stir up some anxiety. I've been in one. But he says they begin to take off. The pastor gets in the, the pilot seat and David gets in the co-pilot seat, his, his law partner's behind him, they all put the headsets on, they get on the runway, they get off the ground, they're kind of climbing and ascending, he starts to feel better. He's like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing, we're gonna be all right. You know, they're three or four, five minutes into the climb, and um, they get into heavy cloud cover, and the pastor pilot looks over at David and says, hey, I, I need to tell you something. It doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes when I get in heavy cloud cover and there's pressure changes, I pass out cold. <laughs> to quote Pastor Ben, that would have been a handy piece of information to have before I left the ground with you, right? But now there, David says, I look and we are surrounded in clouds. I look back at the pilot and already his eyes have rolled in the back of his head and he mumbles something and he passes out, cold, out. David said, I tried to grab him. I was shaking him. I was trying to wake him up. He said, if I can wake him up, then I can kill him properly, right? <laughs> right now, it isn't good to kill an unarmed man who's passed out, but if he wakes up, it's on, right? His law partner says, we're going to die, aren't we? And David said, yeah, I don't know how we're getting out of this. So he grabs the radio, pilot's passed out, he clicks the button and he just says, hello, hello, hello. And a voice comes over the radio and says, 
don't you know proper radio etiquette? Who are you? And David goes, no, I, I don't know radio etiquette. We're two guys in a plane and the pilot has passed out. He's passed out cold and we don't know how to fly. He goes, You're, there's three of you, two of you are passengers. The pilot has passed out and you don't know how to fly. Is that correct, sir? Yes, that's right. And David said the next words he heard from the voice on the other end were key to his survival. And the voice said this, Mr. Gibbs, I want you to listen to my voice. And if you will listen to my voice and only my voice, I'll get you home. I'll get you home. A moment later, the guy comes back on and says, okay, Mr. Gibbs, I see you on the radar. Here's what I want to tell you. I know you can't see me, but I can see you. You, you can't see me, but I see you. I know right where you are. And I want you to follow my voice. He said, it's going to take me about an hour and a half to get you to Anchorage. And I want to tell you, you're going to go through some weather. It's going to be rough. But you listen to my voice. He says, now, David, we have to make a course correction because in four minutes, if you don't change course, you're going to fly into a mountain. We have to change course. He says, but I'm going to tell you how to do that. You're going to listen to my voice. So they make the course correction. He goes, okay, Mr. Gibbs, you're about to come into some weather and you're going to be in it for a while. It is going to be rough. And he says, do not get distracted by the weather around you. You're going to hear thunder. You're going to see lightning. Do not get distracted by what's around you. Listen to my voice. Do exactly as I say. So he's listening to his voice. He says, no, David, you're going to have a tendency to want to take control of this plane and maybe turn one direction or another or get distracted by the lights and all the knobs. He says, don't get distracted. Only listen to my voice and obey what I'm telling you to do. About an hour and 20 minutes later, they're out of the weather. He says, okay, Mr. Gibbs, you're doing great. We're getting ready to bring you down. He says, I've, we've frozen all traffic around you. Nobody's in the air. We've made a runway for you. Here's how you're going to know it's the runway that you land on. The lights that outline that runway are in the shape of a cross. See, I told you, you weren't going to believe me. You thought it was a preacher story. It's a real story. And David Gibbs is telling this story, and he says, and I quote the air traffic controller when he said, follow the cross home. That's what he said. So David follows the voice of the, he's, he's listening to those, he's bringing it down, make this adjustment, do this, don't do that, only do this. And he said, and we come down and we land the plane. He said, I actually landed it seven times. Boom, 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 right? He's just bouncing down the runway. And he, the plane comes to a stop. It stops. And they realize they're alive. And before they take their headset off, the voice says, Mr. Gibbs, Thank you for listening to my voice. He says, we lose people all the time and they crash and burn because they won't listen. They get distracted by all the noise and the storms around them. They become convinced they can just do it without my help. You're alive because you listened to my voice. They put them up in a hotel room and the next morning, early in the morning, there was a knock on Mr. Gibbs' hotel door. He opens the door. There's a man standing there that he doesn't recognize, but the man standing there says, hello, David. And he goes, you're the voice. 
You're the voice. He said, I'll never forget that voice. You're the voice. He goes, yeah, I'm the voice. He said, you're the voice that brought me home. Church family, I want you to hear me say, no matter where you are, no matter what sin struggle you deal with, but hear me, if these issues of sexuality or gender are an area of struggle for you, listen to his voice he will bring you home he will bring you home and he'll bring you into a life of blessing and of thriving and of prospering and the day will come when we'll get to stand before him and he'll call our name and we'll go that's the voice that brought me home it brought me safe if you'll listen to his voice. So here's how we're going to end today. We're going to pray that for the next four weeks, we will listen to his voice and only his voice. And that we're going to trust together, no matter what our struggle is, if we listen to that voice, he's going to bring us home. Amen. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the treasure of just belonging to you and being your people. Help us, God. Help us listen to your voice. Help us follow your voice. God, in those areas where we're struggling and we're not sure how we're going to get through, those areas where thoughts in our mind and feelings in our bodies don't line up with your word, help us listen to your voice and trust that you will bring us home. I love you, Lord. Encourage your people. Fill them with your presence. Strengthen us with truth and cause us to overflow with compassion. In Jesus' name.